I got into homesteading because I was sort of tired of the rat race. And I really just got sick of being behind a computer. And it was so ridiculous to me that I just would sit at a desk all day long and people would tell me how nice it was outside that day. And I had no clue. And I thought, this is not good enough for me. And I didn't want to spend my entire life behind a computer so I could try and then do something later at retirement age. That made absolutely zero sense to me. I wanted to do it now. I wanted to live more in alignment with the seasons. I wanted to feel the weather. I wanted to have some sort of direct control over some of my food supply because there's a stronger sense of gratification that comes with that connection, at least for me. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, today we are on a homestead in central New Jersey. I want to welcome homesteader herself, Angela Ferraro Fanning. Angela, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Hi, thank you for having me, and well done pronouncing my entire last full name correctly. That's pretty impressive. I am really glad that we have a chance to have a conversation. I want to start off with the idea of homesteading is something that people hear that, and, and you can almost see it in their eyes. They kind of like, there's kind of like, well, what exactly is that? But I'm already attracted to it. I don't even know for sure how to describe it. But something seems awfully appealing about it. And and so before we got in the conversation, I did my own little version of tapping artificial intelligence. And I asked Siri what Siri thought about it. She's my buddy today. So every once in a while, she'll just chime in. And in fact, if I say her name too much, even while we're doing the podcast, she may join us. So I hope you're not offended. She... <laughs> not at all. But I'm <laughs> extremely curious as to what she said. She said... It's a lifestyle of self-sufficiency. Huh. Is that interesting? Yeah. I don't know if you take exception to that at all. I mean, uh, some people, when you talk about anything related to agriculture and you go too quick to the lifestyle side, they say, no, it's a business. And no, we're trying, you know, because they feel like they're not being taken seriously. But um, anyway, in Siri's opinion, which is my own, I think, little artificial intelligence friend today, yeah. um, they're saying self-sufficiency. I mean, does, before I make you say that fits for you exactly, describe it. I mean, how you find yourself doing what you're doing. We're going to describe what that is. And um, and then the little journey, too, of thinking this is something that you wanted to do, to be homesteading. So, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about kind of what you're doing and how you see homesteading. Sure. Well, I, I agreed to the self-sufficiency definition to an extent. Um, there is a facet of homesteading that's kind of dubbed as what's called being a prepper, where you're not necessarily, say, growing all of your own food, but you sure are taking advantage of low costs at grocery stores or big big box stores, bringing all this produce home and canning it. Same goes for toilet paper or other dry goods. And you're really prepping and making sure you have everything in place 
should there be an emergency so that you can be fully self-sufficient. Yeah. And so that's sort of its own facet of homesteading. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, it's just sort of a different thought process, a different school, right? Whereas for me, I got into homesteading because I was sort of tired of the rat race. And I really just got sick of being behind a computer. I had worked so hard for 10 years to have a successful graphic design business. I was at the point where I either needed to seriously consider hiring because I was having a hard time keeping up with the demand. I was working long hours. I had just had an infant several months prior. And it was so ridiculous to me that I just would sit at a desk all day long and people would tell me how nice it was outside that day. And I had no clue. And I thought, this is not good enough for me. You know, I love, I loved the design business for a while, but suddenly it just didn't seem that important. My priorities began to change. And I didn't want to spend my entire life or my able-bodied working life behind a computer so I could try and then do something later at retirement age. That made absolutely zero sense to me. I wanted to do it now. I wanted to live more in alignment with the seasons. I wanted to feel the weather. I wanted to have some sort of direct control over some of my food supply because there's a stronger sense of gratification that comes with that connection, at least for me. And so I started teaching myself through books and science journals and and YouTube videos and blogs and basically any resource I could get my hands on, classes, both online and in person. I started teaching myself different facets of homesteading. And I had always had a garden. So gardening for me came relatively, you know, natural, naturally speaking. But I, I didn't know about beekeeping. I taught myself canning, taught myself how to make soap, got ducks for eggs. And it became, it, it, it became a snowball effect because as I was harvesting my own food and as I had started replacing ornamentals in my gardenscapes with edibles and as I started seeing that I felt better, I felt healthier and the sense of pride, it was like, what else can I do? So now I have, a, you know, a, a, that was a three quarter acre property. Now I sort of have the official farm, if you will, with six acres, and I'm still teaching myself things. Um, I taught myself to drive Clydesdale horses, and it's all because I'm really looking to get away from industrialization in my daily life so that I can feel a connection with nature and animals, because I think it's become human nature to remove ourselves from nature and the greater ecosystem, and we think that we're our own facet and it's not working out to our own health, you know, the detriment to our own health, to the detriment of the health of the earth. It's not working. And for me, there's nothing more gratifying than being able to not only make myself healthier, but my environment surrounding me, you know, my little plot, six acres, I, I am improving it. I'm working hard daily to learn how to improve it better. That to me is what homesteading is. Wow. You know, there's people that are going to rewind back to the beginning of this so that they can listen to you say that again, because you just nailed what um, a lot of people feel, I think. And that some of the people that I've had guests before that, that they say there's something more and and what we've been doing is not enough. And um, but many of them that are still listening to our podcast uh, haven't made the plunge yet. But you reached a stage that you said, okay, that's it. We're going to do it. 
And at that time, were you able, didn't you go out and look for some, some acreage that you find the six acres to be able to do this on? You know, we were on this three quarter acre property that was surrounded by this uh, protected wildlife area. And so it felt a lot larger than three quarters of an acre, but I, I could have hands on uh, experience, get my hands dirty. I could, three quarters of an acre was what was malleable, right? And so um, I thought I was content there for a while and I did as much as I could with it. I really maxed out that space. And I'm sort of of the mindset that homesteading is more of a mindset. It's more of an approach to living your life. You can do a lot with a little. Mm -hmm. And then the neighbors, we were the black sheep, right? And they didn't like what we were doing. They thought that we were starting to look too much like a farm in a suburban neighborhood, even though it was very spread out. You know, each house had a couple of acres. We were the smallest plot. Um, we didn't fit in there. And I remember we got very frustrated. We had gotten some goats and it didn't work out. We had to give the goats back and the neighborhood felt really empowered. And I remember the the zoning officer saying, the lifestyle you're trying to live is very noble, but this isn't the right place for it. Mm. And that spark, that lit a fire, not just under me, but under my husband as well. And we thought we want to live somewhere where trying to live closer to, to the land and more in alignment with nature yeah. isn't a noble cause, but not welcome in a certain, you know, neighborhood. Yeah. Right. So we just found something else and it, it obviously worked out for the better. So you're out there and you're doing this now and you have, and you've got kids too, right? Did yeah. you're, you, you, that, is it three? I have two. Oh, oh two God. kids. Okay. Yeah, no, okay. Two, two kids. And um, I'm already going to be coaching you on how you can put them to work, but there's, <laughs> But, you know, the, the work is the other side. When you get out there, I looked at your website and incredible. You've got so much going on in that six acres. Thank you. Uh, uh, it's it's amazing. Describe it to people. Describe. Let's go through the list. We got enough time of all okay. the things that you're growing and, and okay. the, you know, the animals and the plants and so forth and the bees. Let's let's yeah. go through them. So what makes me a little different than most homesteaders is that I'm a permaculture homesteader which means that I find natural solutions for problems. I try to make an ecosystem out of my farm and, and mimic relationships between people, plants, and animals, just as you would see in nature. And so what ends up happening is you don't just have this random collection of things going on at a farm. Instead, everything serves one or more purposes. And so I'm creating an ecosystem. So if we have the garden at the epicenter, right, I'm trying to grow as much food as I can then I have my garden and I have my orchard. And so you think, okay, well, we're going to have pests. I live in central New Jersey, which is considered, traditionally speaking, a wet growing climate. So that means we have a lot of snails, slugs, and pill bugs. And so we also have a stream. When you're looking at having something for eggs and something that's also going to feed on those particular pests, you start thinking about ducks. So I have a flock of about 35 ducks right now and they go into my growing spaces. My husband has a hobby vineyard as well. And, and they eat up all of the little pests and, and they do their thing. And, um, you know, then we have geese because the geese, they go through my pastures where my horses and sheep are. And we'll get to that in a second. And they also eat up um, weeds and such that grow along the fence posts and they protect the ducks. And so they have, a lot of, you know, different, um, they, they have a lot of different properties that they bring to the farm other than just the fact that they could be used for eggs or meat. 
So then we have the livestock guardian dogs because we have, oddly, in New Jersey, a ridiculous predator load. We have black bear, bobcats, the supposed mountain lion that people catch on their night cameras, but who knows. We have fox, coyote, fisher cats, and the list goes on. And so when you bring in uh, uh, prey animals into your ecosystem, the responsible thing to do is to protect them accordingly. And I don't want to put them in a coop at night because of ventilation reasons, bedding costs, but quite frankly, they're not very happy. So they stay in a one acre pasture. They nest in the grass at night, just like wild ducks would, and they're under the guardianship of a livestock guardian dog. And we haven't lost one under his protection. And uh, let's see, then, you know, all of these things contribute to the garden, as I said before. But the one thing that they weren't doing was getting rid of ticks. After I had Lyme's disease last summer and lost the ability to use my leg, and uh, my do- two of my dogs lost the ability to use their legs from Lyme's as well, I thought we got to bring in something that's going to eat the ticks. It's not a tick problem. It's a predator of the tick problem. It's not a balance. We brought in guinea fowl, and they've eradicated the ticks for us. They take care of that. So they have a job that no other bird is fulfilling. And it also keeps the other animals healthy because now I don't have ticks on my horses, my sheep, my dogs, or my cats. And they roost in the trees by night. So, you know, there's no added shelter that's required. And the, again, the guardian dog keeps them safe. So, you know, you have a lot of land, you have pasture spaces, you have the birds going through it. But what's going to eat up all of the grass? We have a lot of native grasses that grow here. Not a lot of woody shrubs on this particular property. This site. And so I thought, you know what, I, I have this garden space, we're gonna bring in some horses. I've always loved horses. I love to ride them. But the horses, we can, you know, compost the manure. That's great for all of the growing spaces, the orchard, the garden and the vineyard. They're actually going to pull for me. So before I practiced no till farming, I did use the horse for some tilling. Initially, I taught myself how to do that. But now I don't use them for tilling because I'm a more permaculture-based farmer. And so now I use them for hauling and harvest. I grow pumpkins in my forest and the vines climb the trees and we pick pumpkins off of trees and I'll throw it in the back of the wagon and the horse pulls the wagon through the forest. And so the horses definitely still work. They just work in a less destructive capacity to the soil. So the sheep come in, interestingly enough, because we had a lot of worm issues. And when you're only cycling one type of livestock through your pasture spaces, you're going to open them up to worms and parasites, right? One interesting thing people don't realize is when you do interspecies grazing, they ingest the parasites that affect each other. So when I brought in just a handful of sheep, just five, and I sought out breeds that do really well on pastures, they don't need a lot of supplemental feed. As they graze, they ingest the parasites that affect the horses. And now the horses are also ingesting the parasites that affect the sheep. Dewormer is not something we have to do regularly anymore. We're not on a regular schedule. Everybody's healthy and my pastures are healthy because the horses eat different plants than the sheep do. And again, then the flock goes through in my pastures after I have the horses and the sheep rotated and the geese are eating the weeds left behind. The birds blow apart the manure piles looking for insects, ingesting parasites. And this is the way that nature intended animals to graze is to be in a short area or a small area for a short time and to move on and to have different animals come through. And in doing that, we're returning different nutrients to the soil. We're eating different types of forage. We're increasing organic matter. We're trampling um, different forage types differently. So it's returning organic matter. 
it's really creating an entire ecosystem. Then we have the honeybees, lastly. The honeybees, um, you know, honey is a perk, but I really don't take that much honey. I use them for pollination. You know, there's obviously a lot of native pollinators out there, and we do a lot of um, companion planting with flowers and use plants that will attract all different types of pollinators. But I have two honeybee hives right now, and that just helps to keep up our yield. So that's sort of everything that we have. Everybody has a job. Everybody has a different task. You can't have any uh, multiple groups of animals that are eating the same thing, doing the same thing, because then you have too much of a good thing. And that's when things in the ecosystem start to get off balance. So uh, that, that's everything I have going on here. And what about the vegetables, uh, fruits and vegetables? Yeah. So I don't use any sprays. I don't use any chemicals, no additives. I don't even use neem oil, diatomaceous earth. It's all an integrated pest management system with no additives. It's just understanding my microclimate, understanding what plants work here, what don't, giving the ducks access to the garden beds to eradicate pests that might show up. And one thing that's really important when it comes to permaculture is I'm interested in planting perennials. That's not just fruit trees, but shrubs. There's also even things like perennial broccoli that you can grow. Uh, there's a perennial tomatillo, ground cherry type of thing. Um, when you have perennials, you give birds and predatory insects like praying mantis a place to live so they're going to be uh sort of your natural pest control i've got praying mantis egg cases everywhere in my growing spaces it's like having an entire army of pest control that i don't have to do anything for they just mm -hmm. exist there because i've created the right living environment um so yeah i think we're well on our way to creating a functioning ecosystem we've seen a return in swallows to return and owls, predatory birds, and they're welcome here. You don't often hear that when people have a flock, uh, but the livestock guardian dogs, I have two, they keep everybody safe, and they're eating the things that most people hire 20 barn cats for. I have two barn cats, and the owls and all of the predatory birds, they take care of the rest, you know? Um, so it's understanding what already lives here, and it's not all about me. It's not all about what I want, what I think is cute. I'm going to plant only what I eat, but understanding my time on this particular plot is temporary and cry, trying to create a resilient homestead ecosystem that's going to stay around well past my time at this farm. Boy, what a beautiful picture you've got. Uh, okay. And in fact, you know, I, I think it's it's the absolute opposite of monocropping. And, yeah. and and when I have looked online at what all you're doing and what you've just described, it's one of the things it's it's intimidating because it's such a a complex sort of mixture. I mean, it makes perfect sense as you walk through it. But you have so many more things to do than if all you had to worry about was just planting corn or just planting soybeans. And uh, you know, I mean, they're hard enough. You got to plant them, and you got to you know used to cultivate. They're not doing much of that anymore. A few things like that. But with a single crop or or large farms that maybe have two crops again they have like corn and soybeans and through the midwest and some around you too and some of the gardens but you've got so much more going on um is that harder it it seems like it would be it seems like you it's it seems like a lot of work although i can tell you've got nature working for you too yeah i think that's one thing that's um a really interesting point is we think, you know, for example, a monocropper who has one or two main crops, right, that they would have less to tend to. However, 
their losses or their pest issues are going to be much more debilitating. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a pest come into, let's say, like a soybean field, it can wipe out an entire plot in no time if it goes unaddressed. And that's a detrimental loss to the livelihood of the farmer. The entire crop is at stake. You know, that that's a real undertaking to try to manage a pest once it's already there. I mean, unless you're going to spray. You know, I can't speak to that and the efficiency or efficacy of that because I don't use that. But um, no, I think here the thing is that, yes, it takes me some time in the morning. It takes me about 25 minutes, actually 27 to be precise, to go around and feed all my animals in the morning and in the evening. But the rest of the time, it's really just rotational grazing, letting my animals go where they need to go, putting the ducks in and supervising where they're at in the garden of growing spaces and uh, harvesting. And I think there's a lot of work up front. I think the intimidation factor comes with the initial investment, not necessarily in money, but in time and in research, because the animals that I've chosen or the specific breeds, for example, of sheep I've chosen might not work well for somebody else. And so there's a learning curve that has to take place. And I think that's where a lot of people will just say, well, I'd much rather just reach for the can of herbicide or pesticide than put some time into it. But what's interesting is you increase your soil health at such an incredible amount that your harvests actually start to go up with less plants. Yeah. And it's not because you're, you know, planting more it's because you have a healthier crop that's able to produce and yield more especially when you get things like bees involved um so i don't think it's necessarily harder i think it's just different and definitely uh, more thought goes into it up front you know you share those deep thoughts on online i've seen some of your counsel that uh, and you've written and tell people you know what you're doing because there's others that want to want to learn from you and uh, in fact we should talk about that for a few minutes how are you sharing your story other than being on farm to table talk well the first thing is most recently i published a book called the sustainable homestead and i really try to make permaculture farming and sustainable homesteading tangible and accessible because it is it's sort of just an unlearning of conventional agriculture systems and a relearning of what makes sense in terms of your own site, your own ecosystem and microclimate. And so it's really just walking people through, okay, what does it look like to create a, a sustainable homestead? And it's assessing everything from your site to, okay, here's how you can improve your soil. Here's what things to plant for different species. If you're looking at pastures and rotational grazing, here's different breeds and their strengths. And the whole idea is just to create a resource I wish I had had instead of piecemealing, you know, all the information I was looking for when I started. And um, I recently got certified through Cornell because I wanted to make sure that I closed the gaps in my self-taught education. And I, I really am proud of the resource that I put together. I think it's comprehensive. I think it's cohesive. And it's really a great starting point. You know, okay, I want a sustainable homestead. How do I do that? So the book, Sustainable Homestead. And how long is the book? It's, I think it's not even 200 pages, honestly. Yeah. I think I've been able to skim through most of it. I, I got an uh, abbreviated version somehow. I don't know. I got lucky or, of, <laughs> of it. But I was, I was, your, your counsel was incredible. One of the things that I was impressed with and so much of it is all this different detail. But you also give an idea of how much food the different plants and the choices that you would make. And, and, and you even got down to like an, an, an apple tree. 
uh, to have enough apples for one person to eat for a year, you'd need mm-hmm. almost almost a tree of their own. Uh, yeah. You know, and and I've never seen anybody do that before. So that you really connected it into what is the outcome of all of all of this, and how does that equate to how many people can get fed with what it is you're growing? Sure. You know, we see a lot of calculators or a lot of um, resources for how much how many plants to grow per person online, and I think people get very overwhelmed with. Well, I want to grow some tomatoes and then they plant two plants and they think, well, I can't do much with this. How would I ever have enough to sustain myself for even the summer? You know, right. but it, it really is pretty, pretty accessible if you're willing to just sort of think out the math in your head about how many times a week you use tomatoes or or how often what your grocery list look like. How often are you buying certain things at the grocery store? You, know, you can use the spreadsheet or the table that I created in the book as as a starting point. You know, you can say, well, I know that. We buy apples every week. Okay, if you buy apples every week, multiply that by however many weeks minus what you think you won't be around because you go on vacation or, you know, you want to account for this or that. And really, it starts to become pretty practical to say, well, maybe I do only need like 100 apples a year. You know, I can get that from a dwarf apple tree, maybe, you know, if it's healthy and well-maintained and has good soil, I maybe maybe I could get 100 apples. And really, that's just all it is. It's sort of bridging the gap between the dream and the tangibility. Because if once you sit down and actually start to look at what it's going to take, it's not that hard. Plants want to grow, right? Plants see the seeds. They know how to germinate. And I think too often people get in the way. If you plant something, it's going to grow for you. It's just a matter of learning how to be hands-on or hands-off with it. Because it can go either way. You know, I don't want to get too far away from the book yet because there are people that are going to say, gee, I need to get a hold of that. Um, where do they find it? You can find it anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, anywhere. And the name again is? The Sustainable Homestead. The Sustainable Homestead. Yep. No, it's, it's a great service that, that you're providing this for others. And, and, I, and you also, do you have a social media presence as well? I do. I'm very active. I try to post daily on Instagram, just goings on at the farm or keeping up with some of the things that we do here and tying it back to permaculture. Again, making it inspiring and educational and tangible. Um, you can also find me on TikTok. It's all the name of my homestead along with my website, which is Axe and Root Homestead. So you can use that handle, A-X-E-A-N-B, Root Homestead on Instagram, TikTok, or actionroothomestead.com. And just recently, I started a YouTube channel, which is where I'm doing more long-form videos and content, really trying to more demonstrate some of the things I tend to talk about. Now, as far as potential income streams related to it, are are you able to produce income from uh, either advertising with some of those ventures or from, you know, I suppose, selling books or, or selling some of the food you're producing? Well, we start, we have a small farm stand where we sell a lot of the eggs and uh, we have honey, you know, we tap maple syrup. So when that's available, that's out of the stand. But that's just a small amount um, of, of income. A lot of the income comes from writing books, doing classes online. Um, you know, just I don't do a lot of sponsored content on social media. I right. kind of stay away from that. Um yeah, teaching, you know, at uh, conferences, going to people's farms, giving lessons, that sort of thing is where the income resides for me. So how close does this come to meeting uh, what percentage might be of your of your food needs are you able to produce on, on the homestead of your personal use? 
realistically, in the summertime, we grow the majority of our own produce, with the exception of bananas, pineapple, and avocados, because my husband and my kids really love those. And we're not mm-hmm. in the, the growing climate for that. But in the summertime, we can source probably 90% of our strawberries. Uh, we do a lot of our, all, all of our own garlic, a lot of onion, a lot of potatoes. Um, you know, I built a root cellar, so we're able to store pumpkin uh, and squash, all of our own greens in the summertime. So really, it's the off season with more sensitive things that we can't buy. You know, there's really no good way to store lettuce mm-hmm. or salad. And uh, but yeah, beans, peas, those are all grown. We just uh, dry, do a lot of dry goods at the store, flowers, rice, that sort of thing is where our purchases reside. You know, as you've gotten your story out there and you have people watching what you're doing and now they can read your book, what surprises you? I mean, when you hear back from anybody that um, have you come across anyone that uh, that you were surprised what they were most interested in or, you know, what's in, what's inspiring them these days from your own journey? You know, yeah, that's a good question. Um, until recently, it became clear to me that I am sort of a niche um, content creator, if you will. Uh, a lot of people are interested in homesteading, but they may not necessarily be interested in ecosystem mimicry or permaculture homesteading. And so for me, the people that find this way of homesteading, sort of getting back to nature, getting an alignment with it, creating this functioning ecosystem, they feel, they tend to feel just as passionately about it as I do from the get go, which is surprising. They may not know how to do any of it, but they just so badly want to do it and they just don't know how to get there. And so that's, that's a pretty cool feeling to be able to inspire somebody, get, give some of those ideas a shape. You know, so they can, they have a direction or some sort of general ideas to how they're going to implement something. But I also know that my way of homesteading does not appeal to the masses. And I am okay with that. It's a, um, a more thoughtful path. You know, as we talked about before, it's something that is a little bit harder in the beginning. We are trying to remove a lot of waste systems. We're trying to use and capture energy you know we have rain barrels and swales and that's not something that interests everybody and so that's okay i'm not out to get on a soapbox or try to convert anyone i'm just here to share my passion and connect with people that are like-minded you know i can imagine that that listening to this podcast right now there's somebody that's thinking gee i i wonder if we could do this now Mm -hmm. you you and your husband and your kids got into this say if a family wants to get online would you ever entertain getting on a zoom with somebody and 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 asking them the hard questions like wait a minute this is what i've been doing but are you really ready to make this level of commitment because it's not that easy interesting i do get asked to do one-on-one zoom sort of um i don't know just general consultations all the time and i i say no and the reason is it's not about it's I, I share information all day. It's definitely not a finance thing. I would be willing to do it free of charge. It's because I think it, I think people want me to tell them, give them an exact plan. And that's not what permaculture is. You know, the point of the book is an outline of how to read your own site, to read your land, because you need to do that and understand that first before you can bring in any animals, any plants. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be an understanding of, okay, well, you can tell me what your plan is, 
or I can tell you what I'm doing, but I can't tell you what to do without seeing your site, without taking your soil reading, without mm -hmm. knowing your terrain, your microclimate. I have no idea. But what you need to do is go do X, Y, and Z and do the research. That's the only way it's going to be successful. So that's the thing. There is no shortcut. We're used to shortcuts in everything. We're used to being able to just get answers, you know, Google it. This is one of those things that for it to be successful, you can't. It's, it's an old approach that's been around for centuries. And that's why it's sustainable is because it's not a shortcut. It is a long-term investment. But sustainable agriculture, I, I think it's becoming more readily available, more accessible. But I think also it's just starting to gain traction because I think there's a willingness to unlearn modern mm. conventional agriculture. And I think that that willingness had to be in place first. You know, I think where these journeys often start is where your own started. And that is that you're perhaps in a cubicle, cubicle somewhere in an office and looking out the window and saying they're, they're you're kind of tired. Uh, so many people I've heard of are tired of the commute, tired of being in an office, want to spend more time outdoors and think it's a good time to make a break. And now it seems to me that because of being locked up, you know, through the pandemic more, people went through an experience of being at home and not going into offices. And so I'm hearing more and more about people that aren't really too sure they want to go back to an office after they've and so I would suspect that this is kind of a pivotal stage for many people of kind of thinking through, is this a time to make a break? Is this a time that I can get a few extra acres? Is this a time that I can create a homestead or we can? You're a leader, whether you planned on being a leader on this, but you're leading on this and they can find you in social media and they can look at your book too. Do you agree with me? I was trying to put words in your mouth there that this might be kind of a, a key kind of transition period that a lot of people are maybe following in your footsteps a little bit and thinking through, is this the time to make the change? I agree. I think, you know, there's a lot of well-known homesteaders in the online community and the YouTube circuit. And um, I think people are just generally starting to gravitate and slightly before COVID as well. I think COVID was the kicker when it came to the supply chain thing, right? And people started to freak out. What if I can't get this? What if I can't do that? And so many people started making their own bread or growing these victory gardens, if you will. Um, but even before that, you know, the, the food recalls and people getting frustrated with learning how some, some food was raised, not all food, um, how some animals were treated. Uh, I think people are starting to just say, this is broken. Like this is, this is not right. And, you know, you're starting to see even what some soil nutrient depleted croplands look like. It's dust. It's not soil. It's dust, dirt. And when you can visually see that firsthand, I think those things, when you have any of those experiences, whether your food has been recalled, you tried to get something and you couldn't during COVID and it scared you, you've seen the dust in the cropland more people are experiencing experiencing these things because they're happening more frequently. Yeah. And as a result, I think it's pushing people or inspiring them. And I, I think it's great. I think we don't need more mass farms and homesteads, even the sustainable ones. What we need 
is more people that want to grow things in their backyard. If everybody had a small garden and a couple of apple trees, that'd be huge. You know, it, it's not just, we don't need more land, more space. We need more people that want to be homesteaders regardless of their surroundings. You know, I think you're capturing a moment well. I mean, here's where we are. Here we find ourselves. And I, I agree with you. And I think that mm -hmm. people are starting to come to those conclusions. What do you feel is the, is the future, is the likely future of homesteading? I mean, what I personally would love to see is more sustainable programs in place for mass-scale agriculture. I don't know that that would be tangible in five years, though. I think what would be amazing in five years, even if there were incentives, uh, for just people that live in neighborhoods to have a garden, whether that be a tax break, whether that be some sort of allowance. If you could give a household 200 bucks to, per, to put install this type of energy filter in their home, couldn't we do that to get people to have a garden? Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't think that's realistic, though. I think what's probably realistic is more of the same and hopefully more people intrigued with not just moving out to rural areas, but saying, look, I would really just like to grow some tomatoes. I don't have the time, the money or the means to get out and buy a homestead. I'm going to do what I can here and now. And I think that's enough. You know, I see walking around Sacramento and some of the neighborhoods near me, and I'm seeing more and more that are are planting in their front yards and yeah. uh, all over and it's just uh it's it's fun it's, it's uh awesome. yeah and then we have we have so many farmers markets too in ours and some even there's some local communities that have some farmers markets uh, that Im involve some of the people that are growing you know even within the city limits um i love that uh, yeah i do too i do I too awesome. you know uh i love what you're doing and Thank and I think many of the people listening to us are going to as well. Let's tell them one more time the name of your book and how they find you on all your social media sites and the new YouTube channel, too. Sure. So all across the board, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. My username is Axe, A-X-E, and A-N-D, Root Homestead. And then you can find my website at axeandroothomestead.com. And I also have some online learning classes there, and you can see... A, a calendar of events there where I'm speaking at some local farms. And then um, the book is The Sustainable Homestead. You can get that on Amazon at Barnes & Noble or pretty much anywhere books are sold. I tell you what, I've been loving hearing your story and what you're doing. I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. No, I thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 